The Storycast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com/stories. Over 180,000 titles to choose from, all on your mobile device. So support the show and enrich your mind at audibletrial.com/stories. The funny thing about telling a story is that you don't have to tell the truth. Sometimes that's what telling a story means, after all. Take literature. From the venerated Greek classics and colorful tales of the First Nations, to best-selling novels and historical fiction, playing fast and loose with the facts, or fabricating lies entirely, in storytelling, it's expected. Celebrated, even. Because sometimes, through carefully crafting an untruth, a greater truth can be told and understood. But when telling tales of an alternative reality actually stands in the face of the truth, suppressing evidence, exacting war on facts and understanding, and masking the very essence of reality itself, that's when truth is upended by an alternative. An alternative state of being that might not be entirely just, or maybe not remotely truthful at all. And not true in the sense of truth proven in a court of law, established by data or science or knowledge true in the sense of a compass that always points north, as long as there's not a magnet nearby to change the story to an alternative point of view. So what do we know about the idea of alternatives? Consider music. By the 1990s, pop and punk and hard rock beget alternative rock, a catch-all, unifying genre distinction that stemmed from opposing mainstream musical norms and then Alternative became a standard for more than a decade in Walkman and then iPods and still on the radio today. And then Alternative Lifestyles opposed the status quo, from vegans and polyamorists to the Amish and flat earthers, a quest to live one's life according to a unique and sometimes unpopular code is the alternative to immersion in a life that simply blends into the background. In politics, to be alt-right or alt-left is to reject mainstream ideology, but sticking around to rub shoulders with a predominant party to find alignment towards political capital. From white nationalism to social communists, people outside of the popular political spectrum grasp for dear life to bring their own truths to power. Even your own computer keyboard gets in the mix. The alt key is used to change the function of other pressed keys to completely change the effect of an otherwise established action simply by changing the context. And that's if you're on a PC. On a Mac, the Alt key is labeled Option. So by altering convention and choosing an alternative option, we chart a new course, be it drastically different from expectation, truth, or even reality itself. This time on the StoryCast, consider the alternatives. Chapter 1. Fake News The headlines were cut and dry, because so was the story. Why wouldn't it be? The crime was clearly arson, an act of war by those damn commies. But there was so much more to the story than what met the eye, or ears, or heart, soul, and mind. The year was 1933. It was February 27th. 12.59 a.m. in the Central European time zone. 
In that odd part of the night, in between late and early, a Berlin fire station received the alarm call and dispatched the men. When they arrived, the firefighters surely couldn't believe their eyes, and neither would you. Imagine, you're in Washington, D.C. on a chilly moonlit night, your face warmed by the glow of the United States Capitol building engulfed in flames, the very literal and figurative essence of legislative power and freedom and democracy ablaze before your eyes. And that's as it was for those German firefighters. The Reichstag building was home to Germany's parliament, the heart of their nation's government. Deutschland was a democracy very much embattled. A 43-year-old political activist, well-liked by many for his nationalist views and anti-establishment politics, had finally risen to parliamentary power, becoming selected and sworn in four weeks prior as chancellor of Germany's coalition government, the head of parliament, in effect. That man's name was Adolf Hitler. His election campaign message had been simple. Germany had been infiltrated and overwhelmed by outsiders teetering on a powder keg of communist revolution. And the only way to stop those communists was to circumvent a soft parliament by taking extreme measures. A leader needed executive action in these desperate times. And luckily for Hitler, there was a distinct law in the books that allowed for complete consolidation of power into his own hands, bypassing parliamentary blockades and even his adversary, President Paul Van Hindenburg. It was named the Enabling Act and it granted a German chancellor unprecedented power in times of, quote, extreme emergency to immediately pass new laws by decree. This power had only been used once, a decade prior, to help end a hyperinflation crisis. Hitler's only problem? He needed a two-thirds majority in parliament to vote to invoke the Enabling Act, and Hitler's Nazi party only had one-third of that vote. So it was no surprise that the party fought for and was granted a call for new parliamentary elections to take place on March 5th. Hitler hoped to gain seats for his party, to work the numbers, whip the votes, and gain alliances, ever climbing to that magic number of power. And so it was on the night of the fire, just six days before those elections were scheduled. It took less than three hours for firefighters to put out the flames, but most of the stone building had been gutted by the inferno. When the new chancellor himself arrived at the scene, it was reported to him by law enforcement that a known communist had been found in the building and arrested. An unemployed bricklayer, Marinus van der Lubbe, a young Dutch communist and recent immigrant to Germany, had reportedly been found inside the building confessing to have started the fire. Hitler immediately declared the fire a sign from God, using the act as a soapbox to speak out against the imminent threat of communist revolution. Just hours later, headlines from the Prussian press service proclaimed, this act of incendiarism is the most monstrous act of terrorism. The Vosche Zeitung, the country's left-leaning liberal paper, warned that the government is of the opinion that the situation is such that danger to the state and nation existed and still exists. Other national headlines read, Now we will take rigorous steps. Suddenly, the truth of motive in the fire didn't matter anymore. Whether it was arson by a lone wolf activist, an act carried out by an agent of outside communist forces, or even intentionally set by the Nazi party itself, the blaze had set fire to an agenda, empowered from beyond the smokescreen. 
The facts no longer mattered because truth had been defined and was suddenly widely distributed. And now you have to keep up because it all happened quickly. Citing the communist emergency, the very next day, Hitler was granted the Reichstag fire decree by President Hindenburg, which suspended most civil liberties in Germany, including voiding habeas corpus, freedom of expression, freedom of the press, the right to free association and public assembly, and the secrecy of the post and telephone. Germany was thrust into martial law. The SA, the paramilitary wing of the Nazi party, rounded up and imprisoned hundreds and then thousands of communists and their sympathizers, including those left-wing voting members of the parliament. The push for absolute power via the Enabling Act inched closer. It was still a numbers game after all. Remember, Hitler needed 66% of the vote. The Nazi party blared the news of the impending communist takeover on the radio, daily newspapers and posters across the town. The nonstop barrage of press sent the German people into a panic. The message of the mandate was clear protect Germany from the communist threat. So, a mere six days after the fire, those fearful voters paired with the communist party arrests, intimidation of the opposing social democratic party, and alliances with the right-wing National People's Party and others, including several fragmented middle-class parties, the Nazi party rose in vote share to surpass a two-thirds majority. Just three weeks later, the Enabling Act of 1933 passed parliamentary vote granting full and unconditional power to the Chancellor. Throughout his trial, until his execution, the arson van der Lobe maintained that he acted alone in setting the fire, in protest of poor conditions for the working class. Historians generally agree that he was involved in starting the fire, but whether by Nazi good fortune or opportunistic propagandizing to march the party platform forward, to rid the nation of communists, immigrants, Jews, gypsies, and anyone else divergent to the Nazi agenda of returning Germany to greatness. The fire in the Reichstag building propelled Germany and the rest of the world into a dark, dark corridor that would redefine our modern human experience. After President Hindenburg's death just a few years later, Hitler would complete his removal of opponents and declare himself Führer. Germany and its loyal army now had its supreme leader. The law of the land was utterly rewritten and the coup was complete. The war had already begun, and the rest is a vile shadow held passenger to our history. And so this twisting of the truth, this manipulation of the press and minds and laws and police and the government and the nation itself altered reality and so intentionally nudged the proverbial boulder down the mountainside more than two millennia prior to this World War II prelude, Greek playwright Aeschylus's words still ring true, both back in 1933 and even today. In war, truth is the first casualty. So, when conflict rears its head, whether by machine and ballistics, interpersonal or intercontinental, or simply in hearts and minds. Seek out truth, ascertain fiction, and carefully substantiate everything in between. Words can be sincere or minced, news can be factual or fake, but justice is always the purest, lightest thing in an ocean of chaos. Once the waves die down, 
that truth and justice is always ready to ascend to the surface. If we only stop splashing around and make the conscious effort to cling on to it for dear life. Chapter 2. Alternative Facts But then, what happens when we don't even realize that the facts have been reimagined at all? What happens when alternatives to reality become so mainstream that collective beliefs are built, over time, without a foundation of truth? That can happen to ideas both great and small, as our past is ripe with examples of rewriting and revising history, whether we realize it or not. No one wants to live a lie. The first step to sniffing out falsehoods Trust but verify. Do your own research. Resist deception. Spread truth humbly, but with a fierce turbulence. From crumbling nations to flippant celebrations, sometimes what we accept to be true is actually a tall tale in disguise. Consider St. Patrick's Day. Many myths abound. So before you don your shamrock underwear, head down to the parade and celebrate with a pint of green beer and corned beef and cabbage. Get your facts straight about the man and the culture thought to have inspired this over-commercialized, drink-inspired fest of good luck, celebrated worldwide. Alternative fact number one, St. Patrick was Irish. The man who would come to be known as St. Patrick once signed his name as Patricius, and according to other accounts, Maywin Suckett. He was born around the year 390 AD, not in Ireland, but across the Irish Sea and St. George's Channel in Roman-occupied land of what is now either England, Scotland, or Wales. His father was a Christian deacon, and it's unknown if his family was of British or Roman heritage. At 16, he was taken prisoner for six years by Irish pirates who attacked his homeland. He would eventually escape back to England and attend religious school before returning to Ireland as a Romeo-British Christian missionary. And Patrick didn't actually bring Christianity to Ireland as legend suggests. That had already been done a century earlier by a bishop missionary sent by Pope Celestine. St. Patrick was also never officially a saint, merely a bishop, commonly nicknamed the Apostle of Ireland by his many followers. Alternative fact number two, St. Patrick banished snakes from the Emerald Isle. Legend has it that a powerful sermon Patrick delivered from atop an Irish hillside drove the island's serpents out into the sea now, it's true to this day that there are no snakes in Ireland and no evidence of the reptiles ever dwelling amongst the Irish. But chances are, because of the large bodies of water that surrounded the island up until the very end of the most recent glacial period, snakes probably never slithered their way over to the iced over countryside. In fact, many historians believe that this snake story is a metaphor for St. Patrick's quest for a religious purge of pagan ideology. Alternative fact number three. The insignia of St. Patrick's Day are green and shamrocks. From cliched apparel to the emerald murkiness of the Chicago River each March, the color green becomes a religion unto itself. But once again, history keeps us accountable to the truth. St. Patrick had an order of knights, as all powerful bishops did in the 5th century. And those knights were known for their brightly colored robes of blue, a shade that came to be known as St. Patrick's Blue. Surely the Irish countryside is underscored by many shades of green, but that color didn't officially make its way into Irish culture until supporters of the nation's independence used the color to represent their fight in the 18th century when the Irish rose up to fight off their British occupiers as those occupiers were off fighting their own war in the American colonies. And as for the penultimate symbol of luck, the four-leaf clover, well, legend has it that Patrick commonly used the three-leaf shamrock as an allegory for the Holy Trinity 
as commonly depicted in surviving art. Fast forward now to the 19th century, a time of severe political unrest and unrelenting Irish famine that saw Ireland's population dwindle by nearly 50%. The unlucky Irish were in need of a little good luck. As St. Patrick's Day became commercialized, sanitized of religious affiliation, and etched onto greeting cards, the idea of spreading luck was marketed to westernized Irish culture. Alternative fact number four, St. Patrick's Day is a festival marked by merriment, drink, and corned beef. Until the 1700s, only Roman Catholics in Ireland observed the Feast of St. Patrick as a holy day, far from the revelry we've come to be programmed by today. Faithful Catholics spent March 17th, the supposed day of Patrick's death, at church or at home in a somber day of quiet prayer. It wasn't until oppressed Irish immigrants living in early America cut off from their homeland, and in many cases, their very humanity, started organizing parades and celebrations to pay homage to their lost pride and culture, an ode to their heritage, now oversimplified by clip art-inspired parties, lively music, and heavy drink. Corned beef and cabbage is even a stretch to define Irish feasting. The standard Irish fare topping tables across the aisle is a ham-like cut of fatty pork, not the hackneyed cuts of corned beef and cabbage enjoyed in all parts on the venerated holiday. The salt-cured beef was actually made popular by those same poor Irish-American immigrants who were able to afford those cheaper cuts purchased from their Jewish neighbors in New York's Lower East Side. So as our celebration of the life and death of St. Patrick's nears, in memory of all the Irish who fought hardship and stood up for their proud culture in even the worst of times, instead of pouring yourself a pint of green dye-infused beer and slicing into salted cow, spend a moment in quiet meditation. If you pray, pray. If you reflect, reflect. And if you eat meat, maybe enjoy some good pork. And from my own generations of Irish ancestors to your family, happy St. Patrick's Day. Chapter three, no other alternative. There's one place where the truth can always roam free and no one can ever take it away, your own mind. Through education comes understanding and understanding, well, that's at the heart of truth. So get the facts and tuck them away in your own fortress and then go out and share truth. This song, Fortress, is the sixth track in our season two album. And remember, the full album is all yours when you check out support.storycastpodcast.com. I know you're sick and tired They're so That's the way it goes But let me count the ways that I take notice All as many times your eyes give you away And this is what they say
The Storycast was written and produced by myself. I tweet at Russell Silva. This week you heard music from Michelle McLaughlin, Max Richter, Chad Lawson, and myself. The Storycast continues on the final day in March with another chapter of life that tells the story of us through a common thread. So until next time, think, feel, and wonder a little bit more. The Storycast is supported by you every time you click on our Amazon banner and shop. So head over to storycastpodcast.com and click or bookmark our Amazon ad. And we get a kickback on every order you make every time. Simple as that. Thanks.